At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we return to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove family has been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. All right, just by show of hands, who's seen the new film, the new Disney film Encanto? I'm just curious if you've, if you've seen it. Okay, I get it. The f- parents with the kids, they, you've seen it. Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. That's okay if you have not. Uh, if you have not seen Encanto, you've probably maybe heard the, the popular song that's uh, the part of that. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno. Uh, I'll try not to let that sing through your head the rest of the morning, uh, but that song is there. It's about a family member in this, this uh, family uh, named Bruno that nobody's going to talk about anymore. They've kind of estranged themselves from him, hidden him away. He's hidden himself, and we don't talk about him anymore. The film has taken off in popularity in so many ways, partly because of the song and its catchy tune, but there's something deeper going on in that movie, something, something more so than just a catchy song, something at the heart of it that really speaks to our times. Unlike usual Disney cartoons and films, in Encanto, there's no traditional villain. There's no dragon to slay. There's no monster to overcome. There's no beast that has to be transformed in any way. Encanto is a story about a family. It's the Madrigal family. And this family in Colombia of three generations, they all live and share this huge magical house. There's the matriarch of the family, the grandmother, her triplet adult children and their spouses and then all their children as well. I don't, this is a big house, so lots and lots of people, lots and lots of parts of this family all living in this one magical house. Now the story is set up that some 50 years earlier, the family had received a miracle after the grandfather had died. And, and now every member of the family, when they turn five years old, they have this special ceremony and they receive a special magical power or a gift of their own. Yet the conflict of the family, the film centers around how the family interacts with one another. And, and while the opening song talks about how great the family is and, and how they all have their unique and distinct gifts and how they are a blessing to the community that li- they live in, what happens is the movie shows how dysfunctional the family truly is and how it unravels everything in their world. I think the key that makes Encanto so popular today is that it's a story we all relate to. It's a family of dysfunction that that we get. We we know the brokenness and the heartache and the disappointment that lives and exists in our families. And and the popularity of Encanto really just shows itself up even in what we're going to talk about in the next seven weeks. It reveals the tension that we all feel about our own families. And that's why we're calling this series Family. Why bother? But instead of going to a fictional family in a magical house in Colombia, uh, we're going to go to the biblical story of a non-fictional family, the very first family, and see how dysfunctional and broken it is, even in the midst of a fallen world, and yet how it receives the grace of God. So we're going to take the next seven Sundays and journey through the family stories of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, here. We'll hear the stories of our first parents. In humanity, like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And we're going to hear the stories of our first parents in the faith. Abram and Sarai, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, a whole bunch of mess and dysfunction and brokenness. 
And I think we're going to discover that through what God does in the first families, we're going to see his, the source of his blessing and affirmation on humanity, as well as the power that he supplies in his grace to change and to overcome and to recognize even the dysfunction that exists in every human being and in every family. So we're talking about family, asking the question, why bother looking at Genesis over these next seven weeks? But before we get into talking about family, we've got to start talking about who we are, the human story, humanity. Who are we? You know, you know the phrase is out there, know thyself. And if we're going to know what makes our family so broken and dysfunctional and gives us so much trouble and anxiety, it means we've also got to look and understand who we are as well. Families are made up of human beings. Amazing. But what does it mean to be human? What does that look like? And how does that instruct how we think about family even today? We're going to jump in the middle of the creation story here in Genesis 1. And the foundational reality that the Bible lays down in terms of who we are as human beings is that God has designed humanity for dignity. God has designed humanity for dignity. Now, I love how this series kind of sets a uh, in, in relationship to the last series that we were in, in Isaiah 6. We got to see the great glory of God and his holiness and his transcendence and his beauty above all things. And now, and now we get to step down and look and examine ourselves and understand who are we as human beings. And, and our tendency might be to think, well, we're just dirt. I mean, we are, we're miserable. We're pathetic. We're just worms. And certainly sin has, has brought us down and brought us low, and we'll address that for sure. But, but I want us to think about who we are as human beings before the fall as God created us. Because if we, we see who we are as human beings as God created us before sin entered the world, it will instruct and shape even how we live today as human beings. It will form us to see God's grace and his mercy and his greatness in creating us for his glory. I want you to walk away this morning from this message, understanding and believing that God has designed us as human beings for dignity. The story of the Bible, the story of God's work in creating human beings isn't to repress them and to put them under his boot and squash them. It is to dignify human beings because he's made us, because he is glorious in fact, human beings are dignity-given beings by God. Now, where does that dignity come from, and how does it show up in who we are? Well, the answer is found in the identity, the distinction, and the function that God gives to human beings. The, identity, the answer is found in the identity. We'll unpack it this way. The identity, the distinction, and the function that God gives to humanity. Our dignity, which is the highest above all other created things, is found in how God has designed us. So we're going to the creation narrative, to Genesis chapter 1, the very start of the Bible, to see how has God made human beings. What does this look like? If, if humanity is designed for dignity by God, then what does that look like? So I want us to see this morning three ways God designed humanity. He designed us for dignity. The first way is this, that God has decreed human dominion. He's designed us for dignity in that he has decreed human 
dominion. What, what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, God speaks to the identity that he gave us. First, God designed humanity for dignity in the created identity he gave human beings. And this identity speaks to our relationship with God and to the rest of creation. It has everything to do with how we live towards one another and how we live towards the world in which we live. Well, what is that identity? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26. Now, let me back up just a second here. The text here, verse 26, is right in the middle. It's actually coming to the end of the creation account in Genesis. Now, we've got to understand, this creation account was not written as, a, as an attempt to answer modern concerns or to be a science textbook for how, the things, uh, how creation happened in a certain pattern. If anything, Genesis 1 is a counter story. It's a rebuttal against the ancient Near East creation myths of Babylon and Egypt and Assyria. All these nations had their own different myth and story about how things were fashioned and formed and created. But the biblical account is a counter story to that. It's not one God among many fighting for dominion and power and the universe somehow comes into existence as a result of some cosmic battle. No, the biblical account is that God exists. In the beginning, God and that he is so powerful that he speaks. God said, and it is so. God speaks, he says, let there be light, and what happens? There's light. One God who exists eternally, so powerful that his, from his voice, his divine fiat, through that, he speaks the universe into existence, piece by piece, person by person. He brings order and flourishing to all that he has made. So Genesis 1 is this refreshing counter story of this all-powerful, eternal God who speaks, it happens, and he rules and reigns over all that he has made. Now in the story, there's an order of days. Days 1 through 3 are days of forming. God forms the earth, the universe, he forms the skies, he forms the land. And then days four through six are days of filling. Whatever God has formed, then he begins to fill. He puts stars in the heavens. He puts birds in the air. Here on day six, he puts creatures on the ground. The Lord fills the land with his creatures. So God has been speaking and he's been calling into existence all things, all kinds of livestock and animals. And I don't get this one. He says creepy things. Uh, I, I don't know why those are there. But at the, right, at the moment, we would expect God to, to say, we would expect just to hear, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We, we get a turn. This is verse 26. It says, then. So God's been creating. He's been filling the earth. We get livestock. We get fish in the sea. We get birds. We get creepy things. And then. Then God says. So again, he's speaking. And it's happening. He says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Now, in the interest of time, let me direct your attention to what God says about what he is creating. First of all, he says, let us, which is a depiction of God as, and I'll quote here, an inward plurality and an outwardly singular being. One God, it's a hint at the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second of all, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now the word here, man, is referring to humanity. It is broad in its scope. 
Human beings, let us make human beings in our image. And the two words here, image and likeness, have something specific to say about what God is creating. The term, the term image here was used in the ancient Near East to describe a statue that stood as a representation for an ancient Near East god. Some kind of stone little object. But, but note here, God is not creating stone little objects and idols to represent himself. God's not making things that cannot hear, cannot see, cannot move, cannot act. He is creating flesh and blood, living beings to bear his image. God makes human beings bearing his image to be his representatives, to carry out, display his likeness. Now think about how unique this is from every other created being. Nowhere else is it said, God, nowhere else does God say, let's make livestock in our image, or let me make a bird in my image, or let me make a, you know, a cow in my image. He doesn't do any of that. He, he sets apart humanity in his creative work and says, let us make mankind, let us make humanity in our image to display and to represent us. Let, them make the, let us make them after our likeness, unique from every other created being. Now, now, here's why this is a little unique, a lot unique, especially to the ancient Near East stories. In those ancient Near East stories, kings were called the image of God. They were considered the representatives of the gods, but it was in a very different way. New Testament scholar Victor Hamilton states, it is, a well, it is well known that in both Egyptian and Mesopotamian society that the king or some high-ranking official might be called the image of God. Such a, such a designation, however, was not applied to the canal digger or to the mason or to the everyday person who worked in and around the area. Yet here in the biblical story, in God's eyes, all of mankind is royal. All of humanity is related to God, not just the king. So think about how powerful this is. Being made in the image of God is to say that all human beings are given representative dignity and royal significance of God himself. We are created to represent and reign for God. Now, the rest of this verse bears out this idea. God says, let them have, let's make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'm so grateful for that last line too. Here it is, dominion over all things that are made, whether it's a bird in the air, livestock on the ground, even the creepy things, over all the earth. Humanity is given dominion. And that dominion is a representation of God's authoritative, kingly rule over all he has made. He has made us his people, bearing his image, representing and ruling for him under God in a way that honors and displays the nature of God well. When we as human beings love one another, serve one another, build one another up, when we exercise authority and rule over all that has been made well in the way of God, we're representing God well. Now think about what this means for our, our daily lives. And think about what this means for how we relate to one another as human beings. Because if there's anything in our time and in our day, we've fractured and divided ourselves such that there are some human beings that we look at and say, well, they're better. And there are some human beings that we look at and we say, they're lower. But, but if we're all made in the image of God, we all bear divine representation. 
We're all made to represent God and his glory in all the earth. All of us are. Every human being, catch this, every human being, every human being is made in the image of God to represent God in this world. Human beings are not the lowest of all creation. We're not the scum of the earth, the universe, not lowly worms, but God is, by making us in his image, has conveyed dignity, royal dignity, on human beings, on every human being. Let me say it again. Every human being carries God-given royal dignity. David echoes this in Psalm chapter 8. He says, Yet you have made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. God has made us as human beings with dignity. We bear his image. We stand as representatives, royalty on this earth for him. And that's why we should and must care for all human life, every human life. Think about this. When you look into the eyes of another human being, regardless of who they are, regardless of how they voted, regardless of what color their skin is, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of any other human-made distinction, you must remember that you're looking into the eyes of someone made in the image of God. They're dignity-bearing beings. That reality should grieve us when we see racial prejudice in our world, the kind of racial prejudice that would go into a shopping center in Buffalo, New York, and murder fellow image bearers. It should grieve us when we see the degrading of other human beings, especially of different or other skin tones, different or other ethnic backgrounds. It should grieve us that unborn image bearers are killed in the womb. Again, let me say, every human life is worthy of dignity, honor, and appreciation because they're made in the image of God. Every human being. Even the ones you don't like. Even the ones that you wouldn't want to associate with. Even the ones that you watch on the TV and you get angry about. Every human being made in the image of God. Now just think about, if we just started with our worldview about other humans with that framework, how, how would that change how we relate to each other? How, how would that influence and kind of raise the level of affirmation and affection and care? We as followers of Jesus can't be people that put down and destroy hate other human beings because they too are made in the image of God. We all equally carry his image. Our dignity comes from the identity he has given us as human beings, image bearers of God. That's where we start. But our dignity also comes in showing itself in the distinctions that God has given us. This is the second thing we see here in this text. God has 
designated, he has designed, he has given us the identity, he has decreed human dominion, that we are to, to have dominion, to represent him as royalty here on this earth, but he has also designed human distinction. God speaks of this in verse 27. Now, notice here in verse 26, he speaks. God says, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them as representatives of us, as, as representatives of God Almighty, have dominion over all things. And in verse 27, he goes into action. Now, verse 27 is the first poem in the Bible. Think about it this way. In verse 26, we hear God speaking, but the narrator steps back in verse 27 and he describes the way in which God acts. And the way, that he, the way he uses language to describe how God acts is poetry. God is an artist. He's beautiful in the way he goes to work. His art is master craftsmanship. And so the best language to display and to talk about his craftsmanship is poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the three lines here. The first two lines are, are respective uh, relationships to each other. They speak about the same thing, but like Hebrew language does, it's to emphasize. It's to draw out the point. Here's, get this through your minds. Get this into your hearts. This is the reality. The repeti repeti repetitive structure to draw out the point made above. Human beings are made in the image of God. So God created man, humanity, in his own image. And let me say it again. In the image of God, he created them. He created him. Mankind, created in his image. But the second Line, I'm sorry, the third line, it speaks of distinction here. Male and female, he created them. Within the unity and the dignity that all human beings share, there's also a God-created external distinction among us. That distinction is our sex or our gender. God created them, plural, male and female, distinct. He created them. Now let me be clear here about what the Bible is saying here. It's saying that human sex and gender are designed by God for every individual. God separated the human species into two equal yet distinct genders, male and female. So gender is not a construct of, of humanity. It's not a man-made, human-made invention or description or designation. Gender is a God-given design for the human race, a God-assigned given for the human race. I know there's a lot of cultural confusion and noise and efforts to deny this design by God even today, but the Bible is clear. Gender comes from God. He, eternally, he externally designs and assigns our gender or sex. And this design is not to be altered or changed or diminished. I, I believe our church's statement of faith on human sexuality is, is helpful language in understanding the consistent biblical teaching of God on human gender and sexuality. Let me just quote it for, here for you. It's on the screen as well. We believe God created human beings male and female. Therefore, we hold the distinction between the two sexes to be sacred. We believe that God disproves of and forbids any attempt to change the appearance or identity of one's biological sex by medical, surgical, non-binary acts, conduct, or by any other means. God has created us male and female. He has assigned and given gender. Now I think of this distinction, and this may be a helpful way to illustrate this, in terms of beauty and diversity. Think with me for just a moment about flowers. And at the risk of oversimplifying, we all know that flowers are the same. They all have stems, buds, and petals. So a rose is a flower, just like a lily is a flower, or my favorite flower, a tulip. 
a flower. Yet the distinction in their petals make for variety and dignity and glory. God has designed the human gender with two, the human species with two distinct genders, male and female. Identity is derived from God. It's external to us. It's given to us. Not what we would want to determine what it is. And when we affirm and honor that distinction, rather than try and erase or deny or change it, we elevate the dignity of human beings. Some may believe that's mean or cruel, perhaps unloving or bigoted, that I would even emphasize this point or draw it out. However, any attempt to elevate human dignity without God and his design only reduces and denigrates some humans at the expense of others. Unless human beings are the supreme beings in all the universe, and we aren't, any attempt to redefine or reshape human identity will only lift up some and tear down others. One author, her name is Sharon James, her book, Gender Ideology, What Christians Need to Know, she writes this, after the creation of man and woman, God declared that his creation was very good. We'll see that in verse 31 in just a second. But rejecting the idea of our creator God means that we reject his creation as a given to be respected. And that we demand the right to deconstruct and reconstruct it as we please, to suit ourselves. So we can, we can either say God is in the picture and we follow and, and walk in the designations and the, the differentiations he's given, dignify humanity that way. Or we can take God out of the picture completely and say, well, we're just going to go at it however we like. If we place God in the picture, if we give him the highest authority, then we dignify what he has made and we dignify one another well. Human sexuality and gender are his design and therefore he is worthy of worship for it. So what does it mean? Let me be clear here again. First of all, we affirm the, equal, the, we affirm the equality of men and women in value and in dignity. Men and women are made in the image of God. We must uphold that. And yet we affirm the distinction of genders of male and female and their roles. We should lift up the distinctive worth and value of men and women. We should celebrate that there are unique and differentiating purposes that God has created for both men and women. And these roles and purposes, while distinct, are not to raise up one gender above another. So we renounce any patriarchal schemes that elevate men and subjugate women underneath every woman. At the same time, we renounce radical feminism that seeks to overthrow any aspect of society, including the church, that would have male leadership. We affirm the unique dignity of both men and women while affirming the distinctive ways that men and women are to complement each other in God-ordained roles, both in the home and the church. God's authority as God gives him the right to create and design as he decides. Distinctions are a gift of dignity to human beings, not a subtraction of dignity from them. So our dignity shows itself in our identity. We're image bearers and in our distinction, male and female. But thirdly, our dignity also displays itself in its function or purpose God gave humanity. Thirdly, God directs human duty. So where does this text take us? God creates human beings, and he makes them distinct. And then in verse 28, we get God giving purpose or function. God blessed them. Notice, as, as 
Human beings hit the ground running, so to speak. They start with God's blessing. They start with God's affection and his love first. No, no other being in created history gets this blessing. God creates and he blesses. He blessed them. He set his love and affection on humanity. And with that love and affection, he directs humanity. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here humanity is given work, vocation, and industry. Now I know some of you might think that work is a product of the fall and the curse. It's not. Vocation Work is given from God. Maybe your bad job is a result of the fall. <laughs> I'm sure there are other good ones. <laughs> but work as a whole is not a product of the fall. He, he gives us great industry to be about. This is called the cultural mandate by many. Simply put, humanity is to create and to cultivate. Two things, create and cultivate. First of all, we're to create. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Paraphrase, have babies. Make even more image bearers. Fill the earth. That's one reason the church should honor and care for and bless children. It's part of our mandate of who we are as image bearers. It doesn't bother me one bit. In fact, I love it when I hear those kids down there singing and cheering as I'm preaching. You did a good job with that this morning, Nathan. <laughs> We're to see the earth filled with image bearers because we have dignity. God has made us in his image. Humanity, as is created, is to possess and to have authority and dominion to be over all the earth. So we're to create, but not only are we to create babies, we're to, we're to create culture as well. We're to be industrial, in, full of work and vocation. He says to cultivate, there's another way of saying to cultivate the earth. He says subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves. Now, if you think about this in terms of the fall, you're going to think of cultivating and having dominion as a harsh, tyrannical, fist down, squeeze everything out of it kind of work. But this is before the fall when God says subdue it, have dominion. He's not thinking that harsh, exploitive rule. In fact, in Genesis 2.15, in the chapter 2 story, the words that God uses as he makes man and he puts him in the garden is to work and to keep, to cultivate and to flourish and to care for. To cultivate, to, to subdue the earth, have dominion over it, our, our vocation, as it were, are to, to bring creation into flourishing. Creation in all of its aspects are to thrive and to flourish. We're, we're to build up. And let me just speak, uh, jump down to verse 31. How does God view all that he's made? He, he creates us with dignity as his image bearers. He creates us with distinction, male and female. And he creates and gives us duty to fill the earth and subdue it, to create and to cultivate, to be producing culture. How does he view it all? Then God saw everything he made. Behold, it was very good. His stamp of approval is on what he makes. He's pleased with his created world. Human dignity is bound up in God's created design, bearing his image as dis in distinctive genders, as cultural creators and caretakers, all for his glory. The application of this is vast. Human beings are given the duty of glorifying God as his image bearers in all the world. 
That's the basis for all human exploration, discovery, science, conservation, technology. If you want a biblical theology of, of technology, here it is. God creates and says, cultivate. Make it better. Cause it to flourish. This is a, the basis for the God-given directive and formation of the arts, and science, and literature, and music, and history, and rhetoric, and rhetoric, and so many more disciplines. God lays out a blank, beautiful slate for us and says, go to work, have fun, make the best stuff ever. You've got my approval. Have a great time with it. So what does that mean for us? We should care about the care of the earth, even more so than our secular neighbors do. We should be good environmentalists. We should pursue the best medical practices and sciences that help promote and cultivate life. We should be for education. We should be for the development of the arts, of music, of entertainment, athletics, engineering, accounting, law, education, any of it, all of it. Every noble human vocation is a gift of God for us to cultivate and create what he has made. Our dignity is given in what God has declared our duty to be. It's to glorify him in representing him in the care and cultivation of all that he has made. Now, this picture in Genesis 1 is a beautiful picture. Think about, think about if the fall never happened and this was the world that we were part of now. Everybody has dignity. We're all image bearers. Our distinctive genders just cause the earth to flourish. And the duty that he's given, I mean, we're just building and creating great, wonderful new things. All for his glory. That'll be a taste of what the new heaven and new earth is like. But we have this little situation here in the now, the fall. We know in reality, we've thrown off God's rightful creative rule and order. We've decided to replace him as God and instead have made ourselves the highest and best and most supreme beings. We've vandalized the dignified status as image bearers that we have. We've tried to make ourselves God. And it's the universal problem that plagues each one of us. It's sin, and the penalty is death. So what now? We stand under the curse of God rather than the blessing of God. We're objects of the wrath of God for our rebellion. But God isn't done with humanity. God has sent one, to represent himself and us. God didn't send an angel or any other created being. He created humanity with so much dignity that his son, eternally God, even more so dignifies humanity by becoming a human being fully. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Fully God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews 1 says, or the image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 declares, became fully human in every way to represent us and to rescue us through his death on the cross. Think about it this way. Where we failed to display the image of God in our dominion over all things, Jesus was declared in power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He has the name that is highly exalted at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus in his fullest humanity is the highest and greatest over all creation. 
where we distorted and denied the distinctions that God created in making us male and female, Jesus gives dignity to both genders by affirming their distinctiveness. Think about how Jesus went against culture and honored and elevated women in all that he did. Jesus honored God's design for human sexuality, even as a single man who was never married. Where we neglected the duty God gave us to create and cultivate and bring about human flourishing on this earth, Jesus came and died to rescue fallen humans from the destructive lies of evil and evil of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus brought dignity back to us again by dying in our place a shameful death and triumphing over everything that would oppose God's rule and reign. Jesus, in his full humanity, brings dignity to human beings by doing the will of his Father in suffering and dying for our sins. The point is this, that we have Jesus as the perfect, glorified one who took on humanity for us and for our salvation. And we're called to see him, to repent by faith and to trust him. And when we do, we're united with him. We're made part of his new family and all our dignity lies in him and what he has done. And so because of Jesus and in Jesus, we display a new image, the image of God in Christ, well again in this world. We can live in the honor and distinctiveness of our genders. We follow Jesus in doing all that he has commanded us for the glory of God. In Christ, all our dignity as human beings is found again. So if we'll trust him and if we'll run to him, what can we do? We can uphold the dignity of one another and promote it. We can look every human being in the eye and say you're an image bearer of God. We love you. We can celebrate and uphold the distinctions of the human race as male and female. And we can be diligent we must be diligent in our duty to create and cultivate all that God has created because he has given himself for us. This is where we start. This is what it means to be human. God designed humanity for dignity. Let's lift up Christ. And let's carry that out together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.